0: Galatians 6, again, is our text this morning. Galatians 6 is page 975, if you're using one of the few Bibles, the house Bibles there. Most of you know that we have been going through Galatians together on Lord's Day mornings and have now come to the very last lines of this letter. Earlier this year, I heard that there was a handwritten letter that had been considered lost for many years, and it was rediscovered. It was written in the hand of Albert Einstein. And uh, this ended up going to auction and got purchased at auction for $1.2 million dollars. What a what an amazing thing! Just for somebody to have your handwriting to be able to, to be willing to pay over a million dollars, right? To say I have the handwriting of—I mean, I don't think it was a famous equation. I think it was like a letter to Grandma or something. I don't know what it was, but it was uh, it was an amazing thing. And you know, I, I I thought of that because in this end of this letter, the the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Galatian churches. Uh at the end of that letter, in on the original copy of it, the original handwritten manuscript, of course, Paul tended to use a scribe to write his letters for him. He would dictate to the scribe, but often it was his practice at the end of the letter to pick up the quill pen himself and to write the last few lines in his own hand. And uh, we see that in Corinthians and Colossians and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, and then, of course, here as well where he makes it explicit. This is my own handwriting as a, a way perhaps to authenticate this letter that it was truly from the Apostle Paul. And you can just imagine the uh, the reader in church. And, of course, when the letter of to the Galatian churches first comes and begins to circulate, Uh, not everybody in the pew has a copy of Galatians in their lap like you do this morning. And so the reader would stand up with the letter and read this letter from this great apostle of Christ Jesus to these churches. And you can almost imagine at this point in the letter, he just holds it up and he says, look, here it is, and it's in his own handwriting. And he reads these lines, verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And then he continues to finish out that letter. Paul wrote these words in his own hand. Maybe, And he he says he wrote them in large letters. Some people think that's because he had bad eyesight and he just had to make them big. That could be as mundane as that. Um, Or perhaps it was to emphasize the importance of his conclusion here, sort of summarizing everything that he wanted to say from his heart to the Galatian Christians. So let us hear then with carefulness and with reverence these words of the Apostle and the words of Christ for us. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even these who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This last paragraph, in many ways, summarizes a lot of the major themes of this letter. He talks again about the false teachers that had troubled the churches in the Galatian area. He talks about their motivations like he did in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. He talks again about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the centrality of the cross, and and about our union with Him in His crucifixion. He talks again about... Uh, using new language, but talking about the, the new creation that, that really is the realm of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that creates this new creation. And he, I think most significantly in this par- these paragraphs, talks about what we boast in, what we glory in, what we put our confidence in, in terms of the gospel message. And you see, really, this paragraph has two sections, and both of them are dealing with that theme. Take a look again at your text. Verses 11, or excuse me, verses 12 and 13, Paul is talking about the false teachers. And he's saying that they boast. Then in verses 14 through 16, he's talking about himself and those who walk by his rule. And both of them, the false teachers and Paul, they both boast. Verse 12, take a look. Verse 12, he says that the false teachers want to make, quote, a good showing in the flesh. And at the end of verse 13, he says, that they may boast in your flesh. And then, with regard to himself, he says in verse 14, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're boasting and he's boasting. This passage is all about boasting. Paul is boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the title of the sermon today, Boasting in the Cross of Christ. But before he talks about his boasting, he's going to talk about the false teachers and the boasting that characterizes a false gospel, the boasting that characterizes a false gospel. This is boasting in the flesh. You see that? Verses 12 and 13. These people are boasting in the flesh. Now this is a review. We've looked at this word, the way Paul's used it earlier in this book. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's... Uh, there are sort of two nuances to the idea of flesh. on the one hand, it can refer just to the physical body, and on the other hand, it can refer to our natural selves apart from transforming grace and And I think he's kind of using it both ways here i mean there's a little bit of the both nuances that come out throughout this entire passage when he talks about the false teachers. He says that they are emphasizing the importance of a mark upon the physical body, that is, the mark of circumcision. And in that sense, they were glorying in the flesh. But in the other sense, and maybe even more significantly, they were boasting in the flesh in terms of the accomplishment of natural... uh, human energy, personal obedience. In that sense, they were boasting in their flesh. They were looking, in other words, they were looking to self rather than looking to Christ for their justification before God. They were boasting in the flesh. And really that is at the heart of all false Gospels. It's a wrong-headed boasting. It's a boasting in human accomplishment, in human merit, in human ability to be good enough for God. There was an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, condemned by God's people. That Pelagian heresy taught that human beings were not inherently sinful. And so the answer for us is to try Harder to follow better examples, to be a better person, to respond to our better natures, to sort of pull ourselves up, as it were, by our own bootstraps. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, teaches us that we are sinful and only in need of a savior. That there is no hope for us apart from someone outside of ourselves coming down, coming in to rescue us from ourselves. That's the gospel. The gospel requires that our only confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves in any measure, not in the flesh, but in the Savior. But the false teachers were putting their confidence in the flesh, in human works human merit, obedience, in accomplishment. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul's going to go after, again, these false teachers and really expose their motives. First of all, he says that they were only concerned about the externals. There is a way that you can be quote-unquote righteous by sort of cleaning up your act outwardly or going through outward rituals and and motions. And that was what was going on with these false teachers. Notice verse 12. Take a look again at the twelfth verse. He says, It is these false teachers who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So, In the flesh, that is, in purely human terms, they wished to put on a good show, so to speak. To keep up appearances. Etymologically, the word translated here, make a good showing, literally means to put on a good face. They wanted to put on a good face, to put on a a good appearance, a good show, keep up Appearances of being religious. In other words, friends, they didn't really love God. They didn't really trust God's promise. But they wanted to appear to be religious people. They wanted to look acceptable religiously to those who look on man from the outward appearance. And this is, I think, why circumcision was their their uh, keynote. This was why it was such an it was an easy badge of their own righteousness because it was an external sign. It was a in the Old Testament, of course, it was a sign that you were a part of the people of God, the people of Israel, and it was their attachment to this external sign that was so problematic because it was relatively easy so to speak to undergo a a relatively minor surgery and to be considered to be one of the righteous ones now you were one of the holy ones and in 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 a similar way people look at things today outward sort of easy things to do externally so that they would be considered righteous whether it's church attendance or baptism or serving on a meal team or doing a work of charity or whatever it is but some sort of outward religious kind of or spiritual kind of performance that that would give other people the impression that they are good people that they're righteous when in truth um uh, For many people, there is no real heart for God. There is no private prayer. There is no real saving faith. It's all external. It's all for eye service. Done as men-pleasers. Rather than coming from a transformed heart, in a way that pleases God. This was the problem with the false teachers, and and frankly, with the, many of the converts that they made, was that they were only concerned with the external. And you know, there 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 is a subtle, more subtle temptation, I think, even for those of us who are God's children, who are truly born again, that we fall into um, a sort of ritual based performance spiritually primarily motivated out of um, a desire to look good, to be considered to be righteous by our fellow men. And we we ought to guard our hearts. But the truth is, if we belong to Christ, we have been transformed at a much deeper level than that. And uh, praise God in His mercy. We love God. We trust Christ. We glory in Him. But not so with the false teachers. They were concerned only with the outward appearance. And then secondly, and this is an even deeper motivation, they were moved by a desire to curry favor and to avoid persecution that comes by being identified with the crucified Jesus. They wanted to curry favor and avoid the persecution that comes by being identified with Christ. The end of verse 12, notice. The end of verse 12. These false teachers were forcing people to be circumcised, quote, in order that they may not be, what? They may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, we... Uh, if you're familiar with the, time, the the period of time there and uh, the Roman Empire, uh, our minds, as Christians anyway, most naturally go to the persecution of the uh, across the empire by the official persecution of Christians. But this was even earlier than that, really. Uh, by and large, um, this was a period of time in which the primary persecution of Christians actually came from the Jews, not from the Romans. You remember that Paul, the apostle, before he was a follower of Christ was actually one of those Jews who was an a zealous persecutor of Christians. In fact, he looked at that as part of his badge of righteousness. He was a persecutor of the church, right? And so these false teachers felt the pressure. They felt the pressure of going against the apostate religious establishment with all its influence and power, and they wanted to curry favor and avoid that persecution at all costs. Circumcision and law keeping, that was respectable Judaism. But identifying with this quote-unquote Messiah who was crucified, who was shown to be a false Messiah in the view of these Jews, identification with Christ rather than with Abraham, with Jesus rather than with Abraham, identification with the cross was to those Jews just a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. And we, I think, should learn from this, should take from this, that, you know, brothers and sisters, we all should be on guard, lest in our desire to avoid the stigma of Christianity or even in some cases persecution for Christianity that we are tempted to compromise the gospel to just sort of even even to deny the gospel in some way through some sort of compromise because we don't want to stand out so clearly in the face of Um, the world around us. Um, And and I think this temptation comes in some specific ways. Sometimes as a Christian we are tempted to soft-pedal the sinfulness of humanity or to compromise on the exclusivity of the gospel or to uh, equivocate on the uh, standards of biblical morality, because those things, those things will get you labeled, will, will cause you to be the object of derision in some places, and even the object of persecution in many places in the world. And perhaps more and more so, even in our own country, in our own culture and and I just I pray that God would guard my heart and your heart against a soft peddling of the gospel the only saving gospel message because we're fearful because we want to curry favor just as these false teachers did he goes on Paul does to say that they were really attempting, verse 13, they were really attempting to gain the favor of the apostate religious establishment. He says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They wanted to curry the favor of this Jerusalem religious establishment. You can just imagine the headline for their mission prayer letter. Hey, Galatian campaign, great success, over 100 circumcised. They wanted to get the favor of those who were, of course, against doing our good works so that we may receive the praise of men. God forbid. God deliver us from that. Jesus said, if that's your motive, you already have all the reward you're ever going to get. No, we we are not living, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to curry favor with the world, with anyone around us, but with our Lord alone. And of course, what they were doing, uh, these false teachers, their works were not really good works at all. In fact, as Paul says it in that verse, they do not themselves keep the law. Even though they want to boast about getting you circumcised, they don't even they want to boast that they made you keep the law. They don't even keep the law. There is there is a kind of outward religion that masks an inward corruption, a hidden sinful lifestyle with a veneer of churchiness. But between Sundays, I'm living in a very different way. That person is living an ungodly life. It's all it's all a name. It's all a show. It's all for the keeping up of of appearances. And God forbid that there should be anybody like that among us. Examine yourself, brothers. Is the faith true for you? Luther, Martin Luther, when he uh, made a trip to Rome, and this was before his conversion, really, to where the, the true gospel really dawned on him and he was set free, he was still caught up in. Uh, the works-oriented rituals of the church of his day. And he went to Rome, which would have been for him the pinnacle of his Christian experience, right? To go to the very center, in his mind, of of the church. And he went there, and what he found dismayed him utterly. Utterly because he saw clergy members in the highest ranks of the of, of of the church or in the in the holiest city of the church at least who were living clearly ungodly lives in sexual immorality and in clear and obvious love of money this is what paul saw in his day these people who want to be considered to be religious But the truth is, the reality is, they do not keep the law of God. He said it uh, this way in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. That is what's going on in Galatians. People who really do not love God and love his law. Nevertheless, latching on to these external manifestations of law keeping as if that proves that they are righteous with God. Let every man examine himself before God. What is your inward heart like? What is your secret life like? What is your life between Sundays like? Is it real? Is the gospel real for you? God forbid that you be here every week just putting on a show in the flesh. These false teachers were caught up in the formal ritual trappings of religion. They were committed to those things, but they did not know the power of God unto salvation, the power that conquers sin really in their lives from day to day to day. Paul talked about those kinds of people in 2 Timothy as well. He told Timothy that there would be people who in 2 Timothy 3 that would be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, unthankful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's what he says about them in the end in verse 5. They had an appearance of godliness but denied its power. And I am sure that there are plenty of people that are like that, who do have an appearance of godliness, but don't know the power of God that sets people free from sin. They don't really know the power of Christ. They have never really tasted, by faith, the Lord Jesus and transformed by His grace. Well, these false teachers made their boast in the flesh. Their own external obedience, and particularly in their circumcision, keeping the food laws, all these external commandments. But Paul now, on the other hand, beginning of verse 14, Paul has a radically different viewpoint to boasting. Paul has a radically different viewpoint about boasting. And he says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast. These men are boasting in their righteousness, their goodness in the flesh, but I will never boast. Far be it from me. I think he knows who he is, right? Paul is the one who said, I am the chief of sinners. You know, sometimes Christians get accused of being, quote, holier than thou. And I want to say absolutely not. The most holy Christians are the Christians who know how deeply flawed they are. In fact, they feel it more keenly than the person who just became a Christian. They sense more. They're more aware of their own depravity. They're more sensitive. Their unwillingness to compromise God's standards far from making them holier than thou creates within them an intense awareness of their own sinfulness. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, he uh, in his old age, he said one time, you know, I'm an old man and my memory is fading. I don't remember things like I used to, but I will always remember two things. Number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, Christ is a great Savior. That's the spirit of Christian. That was the spirit of the Apostle Paul. I have nothing to boast in. There is in me that is in my flesh no good thing. Amazing grace has saved a wretch like me. There is nothing in my flesh in which to boast. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. To know that I'm under the condemnation of God. To feel His wrath. To humble myself and admit this is what I deserve. And then it's grace that my fears relieved. And that's the gospel. That's Christ. That was... All of his glory, not in himself, not in the flesh, not in his obedience, but in the Savior, in his perfect obedience. And of course, that's really where he goes in this verse, the end of the verse, because in one sense, Paul does boast just as much as the false teachers boast, but his boasting is oriented in a whole different direction, not towards himself, not towards his flesh, not towards his own obedience or his own perfection. He says, far be it, verse 14, for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And believers in the true gospel do boast, and that's not a contradiction, They don't boast in themselves. They do boast in Christ. In other words, they have all confidence in Christ. They find their security in Christ. They glory in Christ. uh, And I'll tell you this. People who, who really understand the true gospel glory in Christ to such an extent that seems almost spiritually arrogant to people who don't understand the gospel. Some people who look at Christians, true Christians, who say, I am, I have been justified by God. I have been vindicated. Hear that, and it just sounds so arrogant. Who are you to say that God would vindicate you? How can you possibly say that? I, I might say, well, I hope that someday I can justify myself. I can be justified more and more so maybe I can make it into heaven. But this is not the gospel. The gospel says we have been justified because of Jesus Christ, because that righteousness is perfect. It's complete. It's absolute. It's not our own inherently It is a perfect righteousness given to us by the grace of God, a righteousness that's the same yesterday, today, forever, that never lacks, that never wavers. It's complete and full and satisfactory to God so that I can say, I have confidence that I am accepted before God in Christ. And it is in Christ, it is that orientation of our boasting of our confidence that sets the Christian gospel apart from a works-oriented gospel. The gospel that says, be good, obey God, and maybe He will give you heaven, versus the gospel that says, Christ was good in every respect. Put your trust in Him, and in union with Him, by the grace of God, you will have everlasting life. In fact, it is yours. You have already been judged and justified and vindicated in the final judgment. If salvation were up to me, who could boast? But my salvation is in Christ Jesus and in the cross of Christ, He says, I boast, I glory. The cross, of course, is that final perfect capstone of the perfect obedient life of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf and His suffering the curse for our sin that is sufficient so that i can say with a really a kind of holy boldness with a boasting you'd have to call it that christ is enough that in christ i am righteous before god but not only is the cross God's forensic or legal declaration that we are righteous, that our sins are judged. But it, the cross is also an experiential reality for Christians. Our, it is our death to the world. It's our resurrection to a new creation. And this is where he goes in the middle of verse 14, Middle of verse 14, he says that I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. When the Spirit of Christ unites us to the crucified Savior, when that happens by the grace of God. That's our crucifixion too. We, as Paul says, I have died to the world. And the world to me. I've died to the old natural world. The old self. The old flesh. The natural desires of my old nature. The old way of thinking. I've died to that, he says. And I've now been resurrected into the new creation into the world to come that is empowered by the Spirit, not by the flesh. So Christians already begin, right now, we already begin to experience that blessed world that is to come because Christ has already been raised and glorified in that new world. So if we're united with Christ, guess where we are? We're already raised and united with him in the new creation. We have been given a down payment of his Holy Spirit until we take full possession of that age, that new uh, world to come, a foretaste of that glory which we experience even now progressively throughout the course of our lives as Christ is manifest in us. The old has passed away the new has come, right? Paul says in Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. This is, uh, you have to say that Christianity is nothing less than a radical recreation. It's dying and being raised again. In other words, when we're talking about the Christian gospel, it's not, merely a matter of moral uh, moral reformation, of seeking to turn over a new leaf, of being a better person. You have to talk about it in these terms. It is a brand new creation. It's a resurrection. It is supernatural. It's from above. You can't make this happen. You have to call out to God and say, oh God, I'm a sinner transform me, save me, cause me to be united with the crucified and resurrected Christ. And in this new creation, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Those things belong to the world of the flesh, not to the world of the Spirit. And they certainly have no value in justifying us before God. And then in verse 16, he says, are you with me? In 16, as for those who walk by this rule, that is in in keeping with Paul's gospel, he says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Which is uh, interesting because he began this letter with a curse. Remember that? If anyone comes to you bringing another gospel, let him be accursed. But he ends the letter with a blessing. If anyone walks according to this gospel, let him be blessed. Let him have the peace and the grace of God, the mercy of God. These people who walk according to the true gospel, they are the Israel of God. Not the unbelieving Jews. These people are the Israel of God. In fact, the little word and, you see that in verse 16, and upon the Israel of God, that's a little Greek uh, conjunction, "kai," And it can also be translated also, or even. Um, and I think it, it could kind of read this way. For those who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. Because that's clearly where the direction Paul's been going in this whole letter. For example, back in chapter 3, verse 29, he said this, if you, if you, whoever you are, Jew, Gentile, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. In other words, hey, listen, even if you are not, one of God's typological people, historically a Jew, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you're grafted into Christ, then you are truly one of God's people. Anyone who walks according to this rule is blessed in the people of God. And then he ends the letter in verse 17 with this kind of final rebuke of the false teachers. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I'm looking at you, false teachers, right? Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Which is fascinating too, because the those false teachers were fixated on a mark in the body, the mark of circumcision. But Paul points rather to the scars in his own body for the sake of Christ. We know how he was in beatings and lashings and uh, being stoned. I read again that passage thinking about this text and was just amazed. You start adding them all up. This man was in many, many uh, abuses, physical abuses because of preaching the gospel of Christ. And he says, I bear in my body the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ, my suffering for his sake, for the cross. And in a sense, really, that's the mark that's upon all of God's people. Not that all Christians have been physically marked by beatings, but we are all willing to identify with the cross, come what may. And in fact, I don't know if it's stretching it too much, but the the Greek word here translated mark, the marks in my body is the word stigmata, from where we get the word stigma. Christians are willing to bear the stigma of being identified with the cross of Christ. And of course, in some cases, that's far more than just what we would think of as a stigma but it's active opposition and even persecution but they say hey if if this is the if this is the way I'm a marked man then let me be marked let me have the mark of god upon me and this is what paul's spirit was let us not be ashamed brothers and sisters to bear the mark of the cross in an increasingly antagonistic world for us as well as for the Galatian Christians, then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with our spirit, brothers. And Paul ends the letter with an amen. Now, I think it's just really appropriate that he ends this letter the way he does, with boasting. Because boasting, if you th- if you think about it, You could say this, that boasting really is at the heart of the gospel. You either boast in your works, that's one gospel, that's a false gospel. You boast in your own merit, you boast in your own morality and goodness, your own external religion, you boast in that, and you have something to be proud of, or you boast in Christ alone. You say it is all of God. You boast in nothing in yourself. And this is, of course, God's intent in the gospel, isn't it? God has designed the gospel in such a way that at the end of the day, people boast in his son. That's his driving motivation. God wants people to delight in his son like he delights in him. To boast in his son like the father boasts in his kid. His I speak as a fool. His, uh, he boasts in his in himself, in his son. And, and, and when Christians really understand the gospel, they boast in Christ and in Christ alone. All the true gospel does is to destroy the boasting in anything else. Paul says it this way in Romans 4. If Abraham were justified by works, he has something to what? He has something to boast about. But not before God, because he believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace, you, most of you know this, for by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may what? No one may boast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Bible says that because of God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's all about Christ. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the Christian gospel. It is ultimately driving to this, boasting in God alone, boasting in Christ alone. That's why when the reformers rediscovered and reemphasized the God-centered nature of the true gospel, they said that it was a gospel that is by grace alone no human merit it is by faith alone not by good works it is in Christ alone not in myself or in any other human being and it is finally to the glory of God alone that's that's where the true Christian gospel always points it points to a boasting outside of ourselves a boasting in God a boasting in Christ a glorying in him such an obsession with Christ That gives us this assurance because of who he is and his finished satisfactory work that we too are right with God. The gospel, the true gospel teaches us that we are depraved sinners. In my flesh, there's no good thing. Ultimately, I contribute nothing to my salvation, but I look to Christ alone. I boast in him. I glory in his sacrifice. I rejoice in his obedience and I rest in his righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is Paul's gospel. And I... Hope and pray. That is the message that you're holding on to with all your heart. Let's pray. Oh Lord, cause this gospel message to take root in the hearts and the minds of the hearers. Please resurrect us into new life cause a new creation to be formed in us, we would have a spirit given faith. Pray it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.